Hello, you're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. Coming up on this show, I'm going to be talking a bit about direct imaging and, and eventually ALMA. Hannah's going to be chatting with special guest Dr. Thomas Howarth. And Andrew's going to be covering all the goings on in the last month of Exoplanetary News, so stay tuned for all that. But first, let's introduce the Exocast family. So my name's Hugh Osborne, and I am a postdoc in the south of France, in Marseille, where I study uh, Plato and transiting exoplanets. I'm Hannah Wakeford, and I'm at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, and I study the atmospheres of transiting exoplanets with the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, and I'm Andrew Rushby, a postdoc at the University of California, Irvine, where I study the climates of small planets and their habitability. Excellent. Well, how's everything been going, Andrew, over there? It's been great. It's actually been a pretty busy month for me. I've been traveling around Southern California, learning about stars and planets. I uh, went up to um, the Cavalli Institute at Santa Barbara uh, for the TESS Star Planet Connections workshop, um, which was really good. I learned a lot uh, about stars, as I said, a little bit above my... Uh, my stellar pay grade, I think. Um, it's a beautiful place as well. Oh, absolutely incredible environment. You know, you're right there on the bluff, right there on the coast. It's a beautiful <laughs> beach. Um, yeah, it doesn't really make you want to stay inside for like 12 hours. But they kept us They kept us happy. Lots of coffee, lots of good food, lots of good science. Nice. And, and Hugh, you're up at an observatory right now? Yeah, the same one I go to every six months in an incredibly <laughs> echoey room. So that's why the... Uh, <laughs> if you think you're in a church, it's actually just a... The, the it's just, a, it's just an observatory, you know, church, observatory, <laughs> yeah. same thing. I don't know. To be, yeah, to be fair, large, um, large domed structure in which we go to study the universe. It's kind of similar, I guess. There we go. Um, yeah, no, I think that that works. <laughs> and also Dr. Osborne on location. It's kind of cool to get you out there doing science, reporting back. Yeah. Yes, I'll let you know what I find. I remember when you started here, you were so optimistic and enthusiastic and things are just... Uh, eventually chipped away at you <laughs> three years of exocast we'll do that <laughs> still fun it's still i mean i'm having the same a similar thing i've been working on a new data set with a new instrument today uh well for the last couple of months actually and, and it's been really tough just making me feel like i've gone right back to the beginning of my phd learning a new instrument and a new way of, of just observing in general so it's been quite frustrating getting back to that data analysis um it's been good but but frustrating so you're giving up on hubble no no not giving up on hubble just uh doing some new things with the the old dog okay (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what better way to put it andrew is just cracking up right now i don't really (laughs) i can't imagine how you yeah i've never heard that this this multi-billion dollar spacecraft described as an old dog before but no fair Okay, we've really gone uh, somewhat off topic, uh, but as I keep saying, my favourite part of the show, uh, for regular listeners, is uh, the bit where we don't do any talking, and in fact we get a chance to speak with our special guest. So I'm going to let Hannah uh, take over and introduce uh, our, our special visitor for this month. Yeah, this month we have uh, Dr. Thomas Howarth as our special guest. He is currently a junior research fellow at Imperial College London and is an expert in star formation. Radiative transfer, which is the way light interacts with matter, and the impact of high-energy environments on planet formation. So, welcome to the show, Tom. Hi, Hannah. Yep, it's great to be here. 
It's really great to have you on. We don't talk about planet formation nearly enough on Exocast, so I really want to dive into that. But I think one of the things that uh, our audience might like to hear a little bit more, because we really don't go into it, is, is how do stars form? How, how do the stars themselves that our planet's orbit form? Okay, so if you want to produce anything, you need to get material in one place to make it, right? If you want to make a house out of Lego bricks, you need to start off by buying a bag of Lego bricks. And it's the same story for star formation. If you want to produce stars, which are balls of burning gas, you need to get a lot of gas in one place. And so galaxies are consisting of you know, hundreds of billions of stars, but also lots of gas and dust. And if you look at something like a spiral galaxy, the, the arms there are actually concentrations of gas and dust. And so that is where you'll find the star formation going on. It's material being swept up. And when you get enough in one place, gravity will take hold and cause that to collapse. And that's where you'll get your stars producing. So it's material collapsing under gravity and lots of other stuff happens. It gets very complicated. <laughs> um, typically, it's a very messy process because it's not as simple as a cloud just going plop and producing a single star. Um, you know, your clouds break up and there are things like the stars, once you start producing them, they emit a lot of light that can try and disperse the gas and shut off the star formation that's happening. And also eventually you'll get things like supernovae going off, which again try and kill off your star formation. So it's really an incredibly simple process. It's just stuff collapsing, uh, but it's also very complicated too. And one of the oldest fields, I guess, in astronomy. Right. I mean... We see, we look up in the night sky and we see thousands of stars, but that's only a very, very small portion of the story. There's, there's hundreds of billions of stars that we cannot see. And these are stars of different masses. So you've got these giant stars, the OBA stars. These are the blue ones, the big blue ones that you see. And then you go down through sun-like stars, FGK stars, and then these tiny little red stars that are very difficult for us to see, these, these M stars. Do they all form in the same way or do they form differently? So that's a really, really good question. Most stars, we believe, form in sort of a similar way up to a certain mass. Um, and this is maybe, I don't know, a few times the mass of the sun. I actually, a, a quick tangential thing, I got in tr a, lot of, a lot of trouble during my PhD de defense for saying that star formation was relatively well understood. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I'm risking it again. Yeah, for, for, for a lot of stars, we, we sort of know quite well how they form. For the most massive stars, they are relatively rare, and so they're forming quite far away, and they don't live very long. So actually for massive stars, there's still a lot of a mystery about exactly how they form. Is it the same way as the, the small stars form? Um, but yeah, broadly, most stars are forming according to the picture I just described. There's a cloud collapsing. Um, you get the protostar form. They, they typically have a disk as well. Um, which is due to conservation of angular momentum as the cloud collapses. There's like this classical picture of, you know, if you, you have an ice skater or something spinning around with their arms and leg out, if they draw them in, they spin up faster and faster. This same effect happens when you have your cloud collapsing to make your star. Um, but rather than being a, a size dis, dis difference of, you know, your arms to your body, it's tens of parsecs right down to a few hundred AU. So that speed up is much, much quicker than the ice skater gets. And so you've got gravity trying to compress everything and in one direction it'll win quite happily, but in the direction where this cloud is really rapidly spinning, you have the centrifugal force opposing it. So you end up with a young star and a disk, and then the star continues to grow by accreting material through that disk. So that, that, that story happens definitely up to a few to five or so solar masses, but as you get higher, 
Um, it's still not 100% certain what happens, though we are just in the last year or so um, starting to actually find disks around massive young stars. So it looks like maybe they do form the same way as the low mass stars. Yeah, and from that disk portion, it's just kind of keep going on that. That's where these planets are forming. But the way in which that disk and those planets form will depend on the environment it's in. And, and you've done a lot of work and I, I saw your talk at the UK Exoplanet meeting last month. It was really excellent description of the most difficult places for planets to exist and for disks to exist. And that's within a star forming or, or a cluster where you end up with huge amounts of radiation impacting that star and that planet system as it's forming. And it forms these little bubbles or tadpoles. Could you describe a little bit to, to the audience what those are? Yeah, so this is actually the main focus of my research at the minute. Um, you know, we're getting these fantastic images of disks in recent years with ALMA, for example. And most of the community considers a young star, an isolated disk and the planet formation process in that disk. And they're trying to link it to these ALMA images that we're seeing. But as we've been talking about, these disks that form the planets are only formed around young stars. And these young stars are born in clustered groups of up to hundreds of thousands. And so you can have, it's not really an isolated system where you're producing your planets. You can have nearby stars that shine on the disk. And um, the amount of UV radiation that any given star, uh, sorry, planet forming disk can be exposed to can actually vary by more than five orders of magnitude. So, you know, that's a huge range. Of Even in astronomy, that's a huge, huge amount. <laughs> yeah, a huge range of environmental conditions that can affect how the disk evolves and then hence maybe affect how the planets that you get from that disk um, how their properties end up being sculpted. So I'm interested in the diversity of exoplanets and can that be linked to this five orders of magnitude of diversity and star forming environment. And so the way the, the environment can affect the disk, um, well, it strips material from the outer regions of the disk typically, because that's where you're least gravitationally bound to the parent star. And so, so you deplete the disk of mass, which affects how much mass you have to, to make planets. And it warms the disk up. And there was a paper recently showing that that can suppress large populations of cold Jupiters, which we don't observe. So you need this environmental impact and not just explain the planets we see, maybe, but to explain the planets we don't see. Um, it can also shrink the disk, which, of course, might affect the orbital radii that you can give planets. And also when you shrink a disk, you affect how quickly it can accrete. So you would modify again the lifetime there. And, and that affects how material moves the whole di through the whole disk. So we have these various ways that the, the planet formation might be affected. But at present, we don't really know exactly how it influences the planets. Um, and the other, the other issue we have is that we can only really easily see these disks being affected by their environment at the upper end of that five orders of magnitude <laughs> of, of UV environment. So actually, we were talking about Hubble earlier. Um, you know, these things were first seen with Hubble back in the mid nineties. Um, they were looking at the, the hot background, the hot region of, uh, Orion, and you could see these disks around young stars silhouetted against this hot background. And w when they were getting too close to the O stars, they went from looking disc-like to more like tadpoles. And this is just cause they're getting absolutely shredded by the radiation field, losing just time that dramatically limits their lifetime. So we've known about that for decades and that certainly will affect the planets. But most stars don't actually experience that environment. And so that's the sort of bit that I'm interested in at the minute. What, what, are most, what is the environmental effect on most stars where the UV radiation is a bit weaker? And a big issue we have there is we don't even know really what to look for to see the impact of that environment on the disks. 
Um, you know, it's not a gross effect like when you're near an O-star. Um, and so this is a big part of my research at the minute, is predicting what you should see if discs are evaporating in certain types of environment and going and looking for it with ALMA. One of the interesting papers that you, you wrote in the last uh, couple of years is taking this process and looking backwards. So taking a existing planetary system and saying, can we work out how what environment that might have been in? Uh, you did this for the TRAPPIST-1 planetary system, which most of our listeners will be very, very familiar with by now. Could you explain how you take this process and kind of work backwards? Yeah, so I was interested in TRAPPIST-1 because it's a lo- very low mass stars are particularly interesting if you're interested in the role of environment. There's a lot of use of the word interesting there. Um, <laughs> That's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the, the reason that uh, low mass stars are interesting is that they only weakly hold on to their disks. They've got a smaller gravitational potential. So if, if you heat up their disks, it's easier to strip material from them. And then TRAPPIST-1 is further interesting because we see... Um, actually, if you just give me one second and I can deviate, I have some numbers. Actual stats. We always like how you know guests to be fact-checking. S- some numbers that probably most of your listeners will be well aware of anyway, or some of them anyway. Um, so you know, TRAPPIST-1, we have a 0.08 solar mass star we observe about five and a half Earth masses of planets, okay? Um, so we know the star mass, we know the, the planet mass, and you sort of immediately, before you even start thinking about anything else, run into a bit of a problem with TRAPPIST-1 if you're thinking about planet formation. We normally assume that the biggest disk, the most massive disk a star can have, is about 10% of the star's mass. And that assumption comes about because if you gave the Sun a 40 AU disk or something like that, and it was te- uh, a 0.1 solar mass disk, it would break up due to being gravitationally unstable. So people normally assume the disk mass can't be more than 10% of the star's mass. Um, And then you furthermore have like a a standard assumption that the amount of solids in that that disk is about one hundredth of the total mass. That's what we, if you look at a a cloud in the interstellar medium, there's what we call a dust to gas mass ratio of of one over 100. So there's you know, dust is little like grains of sand almost. And that, that's really important because that's what we need to get together to make this five and a half Earth masses of planet, right? So that's a long-winded way of saying that we know how much mass in planets there is for TRAPPIST-1. We know what we expect its disk mass to have been initially, and that works out at about 26 and a half Earth masses. So basically you have to turn 20% of all the material in that disk into planets to make what we observe. And that's a real challenge for planet formation. Hmm. And that's before you even think about the fact that some of that dust is going to accrete onto the star and some of it is going to get evaporated by the environment. So that, that's why I was interested in TRAPPIST-1. It's you know, a, a challenging um, thing for, for planet formation anyway, and I, I wanted to make it more challenging. And so the way I did this was completely ignored how planets form. <laughs> I, I don't know how TRAPPIST-1 Start from really the beginning. Formed. Yeah, I completely ignored how planets form, just took a disk. I said, if you take a 0.08 solar mass star and give it a bunch of different types of disks and evolved it in a bunch of different types of environments, where do you actually even just have enough material to make TRAPPIST-1? Right. And you know, the findings were broadly that if you increase the UV environment, it gets way, way harder. And also, it's almost always impossible to make the planets we see with a disk that is 10% of the star's mass, this assumption that I spoke about earlier, you actually need much more massive disks in in order to... Because it's not efficient. Even if it... uh, So I can place constraints on how efficient it needs to be, but but, um, 
you know, just even just without the environment, the accretion process as well depletes things just too much. So you, you need a massive disk around a proto-Trappist-1 to make the planets we see. And some work that I'm currently doing is showing that you can indeed do this. Um, so yeah, I've seen ob observational papers, for example, where they, they observe a disk around a, a low mass star like Trappist-1 and they go, well, this model kind of fits the data, but we, we can't really allow it because the disk would be too massive. I'm trying to stop that sort of thing <laughs> at the minute because I, I think they really are much more massive than we think. Nice. Yeah, I, I think it's really important for our listeners to help put this in context. You know, we're talking, we're constantly talking about all of these exoplanets, but it's really important to put them in the context of the star. Andrew, you ha you just spent a week learning about the importance of a star in exoplanets. Uh, is there anything that, that you, you know, that went on at that conference that really links to this idea of the planet formation side of things? Um, sure. Uh, if I could take one thing from that conference, it was that I'll try and sum, sum up a week's worth of stellar astrophysics uh, in one sentence. If it's, if it's anything like the sun, we might have some idea about what's going on. If it deviates at all from the sun, we've got no idea. Um, and it seemed like the, there was some, some degree of pessimism about the error bars that we were, for example, applying to our error, uh, our radius estimates for stars, and our, therefore our radius estimates for a lot of the planets we discovered as well. So there did seem to be a, a little bit of pessimism there, perhaps. But Healthy I pessimism, guess, probably. <laughs> yeah, scepticism, shall we call it, scepticism. Um, but I guess uh, for me, one of the things that I've always assumed about this naively is that you have a planet formation um, event, and then planets form, and then that's it. But it's, you know, it's a gradual, well, I say, you know, it's like 100 million years, but it's this gradual process, and you have other stars in the cluster in interacting with that initial, um, you know, kind of stellar um, a planetary formation environment but that doesn't just stop you know you could as as tom is is doing trying to trace the the history of the planetary system based on its formation history so when does the that the kind of signature of its formation history stop being implanted on the planetary system when does that stop interacting with the you know the planet forming environment so to speak when are the planets done well, that's an extremely, extremely good question, and I don't know the answer. Um, there is growing evidence that planet formation happens super, super early. So you said, I think you said it took hundreds of millions of years. I mean, most disks have gone by three million years. Um, you know, um, I was actually referring to the the Earth. Um, okay, the, the last evolution. episode we looked at, yeah, how the Earth was put together and might have been done in about a hundred million years since the star formed. But a very, you know, a, a very uh, unique and uh, anecdotal example, anyway. Yeah, well, it, this is an extremely good question and is being looked at by lots of people. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in this early phase evolution, but certainly there will be subsequent phases of evolution which alter the planetary properties too. So is the you know, debris in the, in the planetary system, you get things like bombardment occurring, which will change aspects of the planetary properties, especially if you're interested in composition, I guess. Um, I'm mostly interested at this stage in where the planets end up and what their masses are typically and the number of planets you might get um, but yeah, the, the sculpting of the planetary diversity continues potentially for a very long time afterwards. There's a lot of people looking at exoplanet atmospheric photoevaporation, which is giving you this Fulton gap, and that that can be proceeding for a long time after the planets are formed. So yeah. actually, some updates there that we'll discuss in the news. But you're right; this is very much at the that kind of I don't want to say cutting edge because it sounds you know so cliched, but it is you know this is the uh, the edge of where we uh, you know understand planet formation and and you know the that mass radius distribution as well. 
And we've actually, there have been exoplanets discovered within star clusters, within these more dense stellar environments. We, around the sun, are in a very, very lonely position. But in stellar clusters, these planets that still exist and are, we're able to make those observations. What effect and what, what importance do different types of stars within that cluster have on the UV environment? Because I know, Tom, you've looked at the UV environment and how that impacts it mostly. What kind of UV environments will different types of stars have? Um, so it varies hugely. It depends on the types of stars in the cluster. So one very massive star will absolutely dominate the, the UV field. So 41 solar mass stars do not emit the same UV radiation as one 40 solar mass star. I can't, I can't remember the numbers, but I, I gave a talk once called something like bring your factor 70 million sunblock or something like this. <laughs> and it was just... It was nothing complicated, and actually it's wrong. I just did like a L equals 4 pi r squared sigma. There's the stellar luminosity, black body luminosity equation, and if you plug in the numbers for a 40, mil, a 40 solar mass star compared to a 1 solar mass star, it's something like 70 million times brighter or something. Um, but it's actually even more than that because the UV ra- it, the radiation field gets what we call harder, so a bigger fraction of that luminosity is in the high energy end where you, um, you know, are, are going to be affecting the disks. So... A star-forming region like Taurus, which only has low-mass stars, will um, have a much weaker UV environment than somewhere like Orion. And the effect this has on the disks, we can sort of already see in a statistical sense. Orion has smaller disks, it has lower-mass disks, and even compared to systems of the same age. So the role of environment really is becoming more and more understood as something that really drives how the disks evolve. A question is how that then feeds back into the planets you get out. We We don't know at this stage. One thing that I'm also interested in that links into all this is that the nature of star forming regions and of star formation and how this UV impact works has varied over cosmic time as well because the metallicity has changed, for example, of the gas and of the stars. And most stars were actually born at a redshift of about two. What does that mean? It means that they were born at a time when the metallicity was different. So the composition of the gas that made the stars um, and hence the planets was different to that at which we look at now. So one thing that's been interesting to me that I've not really thought about too much is it's therefore quite likely that most of the planets were also formed back then when the metallicities were very, very different. So it's interesting that we're, as a community, trying to understand planet formation, looking at disks in the local universe, whereas actually most planets would have probably been formed long ago when the impact of this environmental effect was very different because when you have different metallicities the way the uv field can impact the disc varies a lot as well yeah just a a lot of a lot of food for thought there and just trying to understand and really delve into the environments of our exoplanets and the way in which we interpret those so Mm. i think that's that's really important so i want to uh, segue away from talking about the environment of stars uh, into something that's come up on recent podcasts. We've been talking a lot about being a parent in astronomy and Tom, you are a recent parent as well. Uh, what, what, how has that impacted the way that you think about the work that you're doing? Yeah, so I have a 17 month old and yeah, it's certainly interesting and it's certainly challenging too. It's funny, when you when I did my PhD, I was horrendously inefficient. You'd come in all day and start working at five o'clock. You'd work at the weekends. You know, and you, you're dedicating all, your, all of your time, usually, to your research. 
then I moved in with my wife, and you lose your weekends because you <laughs> you're not allowed to you're not allowed to work at the weekends. And then you have a child, and you lose most of your daytime too. So because <laughs> I, I I do the drop off three times a week and at nursery, so I have to leave. And then I on top of that have a commute into London, so my working day is condensed for a couple of days of the week into very short, you know, condensed intense blocks. So the way I work has been dramatically changed. I guess the question you were asking was maybe a bit more philosophical, was it, rather than yeah, just complaining about how? Really, yeah, there's no. It's not. It's not complaining. It's. It's really just it, how it how it alters the way that you you think about the the work that you're doing. Is it has it changed the way that you view the questions you're asking? So it's changed things in a good way and a bad way. So I'll complain a bit more. Um, <laughs> Always and then, and, and, then, and then I'll end on the on the good bit. So the the, the additional complaint would be that uh, again, again, linking back to your PhD, quite quickly you start to become feeling like this is the most important thing in the world, and you know this is really what matters. Well, a child nukes that basically. <laughs> it, it's your most important thing, and now I care a lot more in many ways about things like the environment what is going to be the future for my child, for the planet. And you know, I, I consider what I'm working on more of a luxury. And maybe some of us, when we're feeling stressed out, like I am right now with fellowship applications, can do that reality check occasionally. Um, you know, it, it, is, it does have a degree of importance what we do, but it, there is a perspective that it's all in. We're, we're lucky to do what we do, even though it's a horrendous job situation most of us are in. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, the good thing is that even the simplest stuff you see in a whole new light, I remember thinking like, wow, that's his first pigeon. <laughs> it must be a mind-blowing thing. And so you just look at the, I think looking at the world through the eyes of someone who's not become you know, desensitized to it is really exciting and interesting too, and gives you a newfound you know, appreciation for lots of things that are much simpler. Um, I'm not explaining it very well, but... <laughs> you know, I, I think you're explaining it perfectly, and absolutely. we appreciate you... Uh, you're allowing us to ask you about that because uh, mm. it, it's something that none of us have the experience in but we, we really want to get that out because there's so much and there's so much of our audience that try to understand the way that we work and the, and the work that astronomers do mm. and it's a huge part of it being being a parent so we're trying to really get that out there get different perspectives on that for people mm. um, so that they feel comfortable in, in the way that they're working as well. Linked to that last point I was trying to make is I think the need to remind ourselves yeah, to stop desensitizing ourselves sometimes, especially as a theorist, I spend all my day in an office looking at a computer, and sometimes you have to look at the sky a bit or you know, realize that you're probing the atmospheres of exoplanets or whatever and really think about what that means just to you know, stop it being a desk job where you're looking at code all day. <laughs> so, so building on that, Tom, the different ways of uh, you know, harnessing creativity and curiosity, um, you, know, you can do that through science, but you can also do that through art. And you're involved in, a, in an art science collaboration called Creativity and Curiosity. Did you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so this has been really interesting um, over the last few years. Um, so I was working at Cambridge. I hadn't done any outreach of any description for a long time and got an email asking if I was interested in talking to some artists. And um, yeah, so we, they, they gave us a talk about what they were doing and then we started talking about the science. And through these discussions, the idea was to sort of motivate, um, well, a, a, I guess, give them some inspiration for their work and B, get us involved so we could do things like have um, touring exhibitions and um, engage with the public a bit through this medium as well. And 
lots of really, really interesting things came out of this. So of course, the artwork itself is interesting, but the process was really interesting. It turns out artists and scientists, astronomers, are actually really, really similar. So we go into a project not really knowing what we're going to do. <laughs> you have sort of a general <laughs> idea. And Don't tell the, uh, the funders that, of course. Yeah, you, you bounce around. There's a detailed proposal. Yeah, yeah you, you, you go in a direction and realise it's wrong or you don't like it and you meander around. And then also, we never really know when to finish. No, no one has ever gone, right, this that's paper true. is done, I'm going to submit it. You go, yeah. oh, that's very true. And Someone makes you. Give you. Up. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so there was lots of really interesting parallels. People think art and science don't really, are completely polar opposites, really. But the way we operate was incredibly similar. And... Yeah, that, that was a very interesting experience to go through. And, and another thing that came out of this for me is that people are so interested in astronomy, but the scales of time and you know, distance and stuff like this and temperatures are just so incomprehensible um, that they're really, really hard to communicate. And art is a great way to try and do this. I mean, on, on the simplest level, find me a press release on something to do with astronomy that doesn't have an artist's impression or a picture. You, it needs to be put into a human, graspable form visually. Or Art is essential for astronomy to really communicate what we're doing. Yeah, I think we'd 100% agree with that. And, you know, yeah. all the time, you're right, every press release, it comes with an image and working on that and making them unique and making them actually descriptive is really really important part of mm. this well one thing i've really liked about it as well is the trying to communicate processes so people look at I mean, images of the sky you see you can google nebulas or whatever and you'll see lots of really beautiful images um but they're static they're it's a, it's a picture of something what i really liked about this creativity creativity and curiosity thing was to try and communicate the processes behind it in a star forming region you have gas collapsing you have stars forming and blowing away the gas There's, you, you know they heat up their surroundings to about 10,000 degrees which is why you get stuff being blown around all over the place when it when it's collapsing the temperature is about 10 degrees and when it when the stars form it, it shoots up and so trying to get the artists to capture these dynamic processes um, and, and then it's, it was especially gratifying because we'd have these discussions that go away for months and come back and there would be things like streaks all over these images and I remember one of the artists saying I don't really know why I put those there but I felt like they had to be there but to me it was what they were clearly were was like the microphysical processes they were high energy you know electrons whizzing around and it, 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 and she'd taken that on board and gone away and you know, included it in, in the artwork and yeah, the other interesting final thing I, with this is the sort of parallels between processes in astrophysics and in the universe. So things like order resulting from chaos. And so, so for example, galaxies, stars, planets, all form from stuff collapsing in a fairly messy way to produce something ordered. You get a galaxy, you get a star, you get a planet. And just talking to astronomers across all these fields and, you know, noticing these parallels was really again quite interesting yeah that's absolutely brilliant thank you for sharing that uh i want to say thank you very much uh to tom for joining us for this uh it's been a really nice delve into you know the importance of stars their formation environments uh, and how we form these planets so thank you for coming on the show no problem thank you for having me so next up we have Hugh, who will be talking about direct imaging and how we make those kinds of observations. So Hugh, take it away. 
Thanks, Anna. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm continuing our tour of detection methods. And one thing that you might have noticed if you've listened to you know, or, or read up a bit about our other detection methods we use to detect exoplanets is that these are usually indirect. So we, we see the effects of a planet on the starlight and we use that to deduce the fact that there's an exoplanet there. So in transit's case, that's crossing the star. In radial velocity, that's the gravitational wobble. Same with astrometry. Um, so all those indirect methods I mentioned are very very easy for planets that are very close to their stars. So we have this bias in the, in the exoplanets that we know already for these close-in planets. And also, the, the, they tend to be around for distant stars because there's no real limit to how distant or faint the stars need to be before we can stop finding these, these planets. But what if we could spot these, these exoplanets directly? What if we could measure the light coming from their surfaces without needing to go to the star itself? Uh, this would mean, for example, we could get um, the light from, from the planet and split it into wavelengths and give us a spectra of the atmosphere. We could follow it during its orbit as it orbits its star. We could even measure the spectrum and brightness over time to find rotation and weather and continents and things like this. And these are all things that astronomers you know, are really keen to do because, um, well, I mean, eventually, if you could measure continents on an Earth-like planet and you could measure the atmosphere, you could find life and you could find you know, a lot more information about planets than you could simply from the indirect methods that we're currently relying on to find them. Um, but let's think a little bit about what's required to do those sort of observations, what's required to spot planets directly. So that you think single most obvious thing is that they have to be afar from their stars. So they have to have an apparent angular distance that's distant from their stars. So um, that you can think of that as a combination of the star being close and the planet being far from the star. Um, so before, before we get into maybe a few numbers, the, the, let's go back to the old adage about one degree on the sky is about the same as a finger held at arm's length. So you might, have, if you've done any sort of outdoor observing, you might remember that kind of technique. Well, what we do in astronomy is we tend to divide a degree into arc minutes and then arc seconds. And those are, you know, minutes and seconds, so 60 times smaller. So we get these arc seconds, which is um, about the equivalent of a finger at 3.6 kilometers away. So um, really getting kind of distant now. So you can imagine... <laughs> that's, that's getting into the realm of not being able to quite visualize yeah. it again. Yeah, well, like you a need a really long arm. By 60, but I don't know if it's easier to think of <laughs> dividing my finger by 60 or putting it 3.6 kilometers away. <laughs> or you could also think of it as it is the width of an E. coli bacterium on your finger. Ah. Which obviously oh, I like that you one. will never be able to see. Um, and then one milliarc second, which is the next kind of division we use for this angular division, that's about the same as a sugar molecule on your finger, or equivalently um, the astronaut, or the finger nail of an astronaut on the ISS. So um, that that kind of gives you an idea of how just impossible it is to observe something at one milliarc second. That is uh, completely ridiculous analogies. I love it. <laughs> Depends on how how. Th- you know, short they keep their nails, I guess. Right? <laughs> yeah. I'd imagine pretty short, uh, you know. Well, I'm, I'm talking about the, the, the width or the thickness, even. True. So, True. Um, so, yes, so the hot Jupiter 51 peg, which was the first exoplanet discovered, indirectly, of course, is actually only 3.5 milliarc seconds from its star, so less than half of a nail size at the, on the ISS. Um, so we're never going to be able to image planets like that directly. Um, probably even if we had an Earth-sized telescope. Um, but a planet at 1 AU, so a planet at the distance of Earth around that system, is 68 milliarc seconds. So, uh, what's that? 
um, 0.06 milli arc seconds. And, and that's kind of the realm where we're beginning to be able to, to, to push into. And then a planet, a 1AU around Alpha Sen, so our closest star, that's just under one arc second. And one arc second is now in the realm of what our telescopes can, can actually observe. So, um, so what can our telescopes observe? So for Hubble, for example, um, it's a 2.4 meter diameter t t mirror. And actually the size of the mirror is really what determines how close to one thing, how, how good your resolution is, and how, uh, how well you can uh, separate two objects uh, on the sky. So, so Hubble can get something like 100 milli arc seconds. An 8 meter telescope on the Earth can theoretically get 30 milli arc seconds. So down to that sort of um, distant Jupiter uh, around a star at 1 AU. And then for the ELT, we're getting down to 6 milli arc seconds. So uh, that is the size of a finger of someone on the, on the ISS. So you can, so actually, even though it sounds ridiculous, we are starting to be able to, to observe those kind of tiny distances required to spot a planet around a star. Um, but there's another problem and that's, um, well, there's two problems associated with that. One of the problems is that when you uh, set up a tel telescope on the ground, um, the atmosphere basically makes those sort of measurements impossible. So. Uh, in space, the photons that arrive from a distant star basically travel in the straight line because there's nothing really interrupting them. Um, but under the atmosphere, um, which is constantly in motion with winds and pressure differences and these layers, uh, each of these refracts and distorts the light differently. The actual position of the star that, that hits the ground is being moved around, is being kind of uh, distorted so much that every, every time you observe a star from underneath the atmosphere, it smears the, the starlight out around something, uh, you know, normally about one arc second. So we lose, for example, for these eight meter telescopes, we lose about 30 times the resolution just because of how the atmosphere smears the light out. This is actually what um, astronomers confusingly call atmospheric seeing. So, um, and it's also why stars twinkle when, you, when you're looking at them with, with your eyes. Um, but in the last 20 years, what's been able to, to happen is that um, we've developed this thing called adaptive optics. So this is this AO, this, this um, is basically the process of figuring out exactly how the atmosphere is distorting the light and then applying a direct opposite correction to it, which cancels out the distortions in the atmosphere and leaves you with a perfect image again. Uh, and it does this using tiny robotic mirrors, which we um, put in, in, the, in the path of the light and then reflect back hopefully what is a perfect image and when, when what went in was this distorted smeared out image so it's really an a crazy kind of magic that I don't fully understand but the um, the result is that we end up with space quality images from telescopes on the ground and for more of that you could you could listen to our episode with Sasha Hinckley who talked extensively about adaptive optics indeed yes but there's also another problem in that you're trying to find an extremely faint thing next to an extremely bright thing um, so for a hot Jupiter, we're talking about a planet being 10,000 times fainter than the star. For a hot young giant planet in the infrared, that drops to a factor of about a million. And then for cold planets like the Earth or Jupiter, which shine mostly in reflected light because they're intrinsically cold and don't, don't give out the infrared light so much, the, the, the flux difference between the star and the planet is on the order of 10 billion, so uh, 10 to the 10, which is... You know, we talked earlier about 10 to the 5, you know, 
100,000 being an incredible number, but astronomers in direct imaging have to deal with this contrast of, of, of uh, 10 magnitudes, which is um, a real incredible thing to kind of think about trying to get, trying to get over. But one, one of the ways that um, astronomers are, are basically getting over this problem is, is using coronography. So coronography is basically blocking the light from the star while keeping the light from the planet. And it can be done in a variety of different ways, but the simplest is to play around with the light, um, with, with optics, and place a series of star shades into the path of the starlight, which lets uh, light coming from just uh, either side of the star, around the star, that lets light through, but in the star itself, where, where the majority of the starlight is coming from, it blocks all of the light there. And this is the way that basically we were able to suppress starlight so much we can start imaging these planets. Because if you imagine trying to just take a picture of something that's a million times or a billion times fainter than something bright next to it, that you're going to get saturation spikes, you're going to get um, all of these like lens flares, kind of J.J. Abrams style. You will never be able to image your planet without somehow suppressing the starlight. Um, so, so with these two effects combined, with AO, adaptive optics, being able to, to get rid of the, the atmospheric smearing, and with coronography, kind of getting rid of the, uh, the, most of the light from the star, then the era of planet hunting could begin. So um, this kind of started about 10 years ago uh, with the 10-metre Keck and the 8-metre Gemini telescopes, which were both used to observe HR8799, which is this four planet, although at the time of the first observations only three of these were detected. So these three giant Jupiter planets around this bright, young, A-type star. And in the same year, Beta Pic B was also found. So this is a nearby young star that was found with uh, on the VLT with the NACO instrument, another one of these coronography instruments. And since then, we've developed more and better uh, techniques to observe planets directly. So there's been two instruments which you might have heard, heard of. So there's GPI, which is the so-called Gemini Planet Imager, again on the Gemini telescope, uh, and Sphere, which is this um, planet-specific telescope or planet-specific instrument on the VLT, so the Very Large Telescope in Chile. And these both improve the contrast, so improve the ability to suppress starlight and pick up planet light down to the level of about 10 to the minus 6, so a million times fainter and improved how close they could get to the theoretical resolution we were talking about earlier. So um, just for some context, the, the planets that were found in 2008, so HR8799 and 8 Beta Pic, they were around uh, 300 to 1,000 milli arc seconds. Whereas with GPI and Sphere, we were able to push that down to the order of about 100 arcs, milli arc seconds. Um, so that means basically you can, you can in, in, increase your, um, the amount of stars you can survey, and you can also go for fainter planets as well. But despite all these improvements, actually only a handful of planets have been found by these two, um, these two instruments. Epsilon Eridani B being the, 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 the main one that's like an old uh, but still warm Jupiter that was found um, by both of those images simultaneously. So, so why weren't they able to find things? Well, the base, the, one of the reasons is that in the infrared where these two images work is that you need young planets. So uh, you need hot, glowing young planets in order to, to spot their light in the infrared. And there's actually not many young stars with young planets around them that we can actually survey. So there's only a, a few hundred stars we can, we can survey for planets in this way. 
And also, one of the main reasons we now know is that there aren't many giant planets out there. So there aren't many big um, super Jupiter, so more than three or four Jupiter mass planets at orbiting orbital distances of 10 AU. So possibly as low as 1% of stars have these sort of planets out there that, that the direct imaging surveys could have detected. Um, so, so this basically means we have to go to the next era before these methods start detecting planets in the same uh, speed that transit and, and radial velocity techniques have been. So in the future, we're going to have these 30-meter ELTs. So these are four or five times larger telescopes, which will be able to push four or five times closer to stars. So rather than searching to sort of 10 AU, um, the ELTs should be able to push into Jupiter and maybe even sort of Mars, uh, so 2 AU orbits around the closest stars, where they can search for even smaller giant planets than, than the current generation of telescopes have been able to. And um, in, the, in, the current, in, the f in the next era as well, there's going to be better coronography, which will enable these instruments to push down the, the starlight more. So, so W-first is probably the, the one um, key example for this. So this is a NASA mission, which is going to be launched in 2026. And the main goal of W-first is to demonstrate that you can suppress um, 1 billion times, or 10 to the, mind, 10 to the 9, uh, starlight. So you can suppress um, one part in 10 to the 9, so you can start to observe reflected light, so, so giant planets and even maybe Neptune-sized planets in reflected light where they have these, these um, are so faint compared to their stars. Um, another way to get high resolution, so one of these two things that you need for direct imaging, is to do interferometry. So um, this basically involves connecting together telescopes, which are over wide distances, and combining the light, giving you an effective size for your telescope of the distance between the extremes in your array. So, um, so this is difficult for optical light because you basically need to align all your optics and align the light when you combine it to a fraction of the wavelength. But when your wavelength is already 500 nanometers, you know, the size of an atom, it becomes extremely difficult to 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 create technology to like combine light in that sort of uh, in that sort of way. In the infrared, it becomes possible, however. So there was, which we talked about a couple of months ago, there was the gravity instruments on the VLT, which is formed of four different telescopes, all of which combined infrared light in order to image for the first time a planet. So in that case, HR eight seven nine nine E. But it, it becomes even better in the millimeter range. So, so this kind of range of, of wavelength is between infrared and radio waves. And this is the wavelength where ALMA studies. So Tom talked a, bit, a little bit about ALMA earlier. Um, ALMA is basically a giant array of 12 meter antennas um, located in a extremely high altitude in Bolivia. No, in Peru, no. Chile. It is in Chile. Yeah, I've, I've been there. I should know this. <laughs> well, I've not actually been there because you have to go through a full medical process to actually get to the telescopes. But I saw the back of one of the telescopes when I went past. <laughs> That's closer than, than I've got, certainly. It's closer than I've got. So. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it, it's important to get the countries right. Yeah, yeah it's really important yes. to get that country right. <laughs> it's by the Bolivian and Argentinian borders, though, so in my defence... So there's something like 500 antennas up there, and they're spread with, an, with a diameter of 16 kilometers. So when you combine the lights, the, 
the size of this telescope is effectively 16 kilometers. Um, and another great thing about observing in millimeter wavelengths is that stars become relatively faint at this kind of um, wavelength. But planets are also kind of faint as well because they glow relatively hot in infrared, but gradually as you move out to, to longer wavelengths, um, the amount of light that they, they put, give off decreases. Um, however, warm young dust is perfect. Warm young dust glows extremely strongly in the millimetre range that Alma's looking in. And this is why you might have seen amazing images of disks around young stars um, for dozens of nearby young stars. And this has made amazing advances in planet formation because we've been able to study the uh, position and the, the amount of dust in, in rings around young stars for the first time. And, um, and it has actually, although I said that planets are relatively faint, it has actually made, been able to been used to detect planets themselves. Because as you are soon to learn, in fact, um, PDS-70b was detected with ALMA as well as with um, the sphere instrument. Um, and in the future, so these interferometric method is probably one of the, the few ways we'll be able to move into the future where we can start imaging Earth-like planets. So if we can improve the technology to be able to do this interferometry, not just with these radio kind of millimeter arrays, um, if we can improve it to, to be able to do it with optical light, so with you know blue and, and red and green lights, then we can start um, building these space-based interferometers which will be capable of, of detecting Earth-like planets and measuring the atmospheres of Earth-like planets. But that's obviously a few years away yet, although depending on who you ask, it could be anything between 20 and 100 years before we have those sort of capabilities. But I think, personally, I do think that this, uh, maybe not interferometry, but at least direct imaging, is the way that, that, that exoplanetary science is going to really start to detect and be able to, to detect um, biosignatures and uh, atmospheres of Earth-like planets. Because, no offence to Hannah, but transmission spectroscopy ends up um, struggling for Earth-like planets because the signal becomes so small. No offence taken, I completely agree. Direct imaging for biosignatures and, and for understanding that aspect of exoplanets, direct imaging is the way to go. Uh, but it's not the full picture. And I will take offence if of course. that's the that's the full picture of what we're trying to understand about planets. But I think here on Exocast we really demonstrate that that's not not the only thing that we're trying to understand. So for direct imaging planets, I really do think it is, like you said, the future. And these thirty meter telescopes, in my opinion, are going to be the first test of of those kinds of things. Even though they most likely be more in the infrared. Yeah, the problem is the thirty meter telescopes. We need to go even bigger to find Earths. So they'll probably do super-Earths and maybe Neptunes around nearby stars. But just the sheer, like, um, so the contrast is the problem. So this, this factor in the, in the light being emitted. And Earths are smaller, so they reflect less light. And so you need to go even to even bigger telescopes before you can push down that, that contrast and get enough pixels, get enough photons from the surface of, of exo-Earths and actually do the, um, the measurements. Then I think I'll be on the pessimistic side and say 50 to 100 years then. Sorry, Andrew, you've got a lot of, lot of work ahead. 
Well, you know, there's always that that adage that um, it's always 20 years away, right? That's the minimum floor for anything that seems <laughs> difficult to do. It's always 20 years away. And 20 years ago, it was 20 years, and it's still 20 years. But yeah, you're right. There's technology issues, science issues to address. But I'm confident we can solve them coming at this from the angles that we come at it from. There's not just one way of doing this doing this work. And uh, different techniques give different, different benefits and different drawbacks that I think we can exploit to get a wider picture, a more holistic view. There we go. Well, on that positive note, let's hear about everything that's been going on in Exoplanetary News over the last month. Over to the news desk, this month manned by Andrew. Hello, and welcome to uh, <laughs> to May's Exoplanet News Desk. Uh, this month we've got a couple of new planet discoveries, some new characterization studies, and even some updates from the, uh, the esoteric world of theory to share with you all. So let's start at the beginning, let's discuss some exoplanet discoveries, and there was a, a crop of 18 new planets from the original Kepler data actually out this month um, that was revealed using a, a new detection algorithm. So Rene Heller at the Max Planck Institute led a team that used a technique known as transit least squares to, um, to find these new planets, and this accounts for limb darkening and the ingress and egress of the planet into the, into the disk of the star. Um, so uh, just a different way of, uh, of running the pipeline, I guess, and this uh, technique found uh, 18 new worlds ranging from about 70% uh, the radius of the Earth up to twice the Earth's radius and spanning quite a range in potential surface temperatures as well between about 100 and 1000 Celsius. So the authors, citing the increased efficiency of this method, expect to find maybe 100 more planets hidden in the Kepler data. So um, PLATO, which is uh, the ESA telescope set for launch in 2026, which Hugh has been working on, um, will also be implementing the search algorithm um, in, its, in its pipeline. So Hugh, I know I'm putting you on the spot here a little bit, but this seems like a, a big step forward for, for the software pipeline side of things, which often doesn't get as much press. Um, so did you have any, um, anything to add on this? Any caveats, any benefits to this, this technique? Yeah, I am using the TLS, as, as we call it, um, because it is, yeah, it is, it is slightly more efficient than, than um, the previous the previous methods. Um, I'm not sure it will be the official Plato implemented thing, but will because there's a lot of work to be done, a lot of decisions to be made. Um, but but certainly it'll be one of those uh, algorithms we'll put forward to to implementing in the final kind of data process. But, yeah, so I guess if you're familiar with working with light curves, what we normally get is quite a nice little square box, um, whereas this transit least squares method just seems to account for the fact that the star isn't as bright at the edges, at, at its limbs, if you will, as it is in the sense that you get much more of a, of a gradual U shape, I guess. Um, but anyway, we'll, we'll see um, how, how that's going to work going forward. Um, but we'll stick with the, sticking with the discovery theme. Um, they're smaller and they're probably more watery than most exoplanets, but exocomets were actually first discovered um, well before the first exoplanet was discovered, around an A-type star called Beta Pic, way back in 1987, which is when I was born. So um, yeah, quite a while, quite a while ago now. Um, and now, using observations from TESS, that same star has been shown to host at least three more of the exocomets, um, making for the, the first exocomet detection with TESS and arguably a real benchmark for its capabilities. That's, um, that's really cool. In terms of characterization studies, there's some uh, interesting papers out this, uh, this month that I'm going to go to Hannah for a couple of times because they're about hot Jupiters. Uh, the first one was about a popular hot Jupiter that's often mentioned on the show called HAT-P26b. 
So using 50 ground and space-based transmission spectroscopy observations, and then combining that with a fancy Bayesian atmospheric retrieval model, um, authors from the University of Cambridge have detected metal hydrites in the atmosphere of Neptune-sized uh, planet Hat P26b. These hydrites are of titanium, chromium, scandium, um, and this show is uh, it's a fan favourite and regular guest on the show, so we talked about it quite a bit. Um, so the authors Ryan McDonald and Niku Hassan at Cambridge provided updated constraints on the planet's metallicity, uh, its water content, and its C2O ratio, which can reveal some clues about its formation history. So they observed these supersolar H2O abundances that suggests that HAT P26b may be formed beyond the H2O snow line, but within the CO-CO2 snow line, um, and then maybe accreted some um, some planetesimals, some oxygen-rich planetesimals, uh, on its way to uh, migrating uh, closer to the star. So much of this work built on uh, Hannah's 2017 science paper, and it seems like a lot of the results are consistent in terms of the, the water content and the temperature, but differed in that they didn't find the same evidence for clouds that Hannah did. So Hannah, what do you make of the paper? What, what, what might explain those differences? Yeah, I mean, one of the reassuring things is that taking the data that we've reproduced from, from Hubble and from some ground-based observations, they were able to get the same metallicity. So this is like you said, it's super solar, but it's actually a lot lower metallicity than what we would expect for a planet of its size. So it's a Neptune mass planet. So we would, given our solar system and our understanding of, of the way and position in which planets form, we would expect it to have roughly 100 times solar atmospheric metallicity. So 100 times the amount of heavy elements in its atmosphere as the sun. Now, this planet actually has around four times for, you know, heavy elements as the sun. And that's more akin to Jupiter but it's, it's a much smaller planet, so we would expect this to be much higher. So they, they confirm that, which is really nice, um, because that was really controversial when we first put that out there. Um, so that's that's a really interesting part. The bit that I kind of disagree with is these these finding of these metal, metal hydrides and these other exotic species, which they then suggest comes from potentially a recent cometary or asteroid deposit into this atmosphere. So recently a, a rocky or icy material was deposited into the atmosphere and what we've measured with Hubble are signatures of these. One of the things that it doesn't quite account for is the fact that these observations were all taken many years apart, so they weren't simultaneous. So we didn't measure the water absorption feature that we, we see there that we've actually measured with one observation, we actually measured it twice with observations that were a year and a half apart. And those optical observations that we did, um, which which show where they show those metal hydrates, where they suggest that they, these materials are coming in and we should see evidence of them in other observations, those were taken uh, even earlier and the ground-based ones even earlier than that. So there's a, a lot of just like, differences there that I would I would say that that hypothesis is really quite far-fetched and then looking at the amount of those materials they suggest should be there it's much much higher than you would expect for anything else which is why they come up with this explanation of a depositive cometary material so I'm a little I'm I'm, I'm a little I'm incredibly skeptical about that but uh, in terms of the reanalysis of the data with a different retrieval so in our original paper we did a retrieval on this and, and we found the met we recovered the metallicity and the C2O ratio, they find very much the same things in terms of how much water they expect to be in the atmosphere and, and how much uh, metallicity this means in terms of the planet formation scenario. So that is, that is a good point, but there's many caveats to that that I think that 
it's it's a little bit more difficult. It's a little more complex story. I don't think it will be the end that we hear of Hat Twenty Six. Never is. Yeah. What's the adage? You know, more data, more observing. That yep. will hopefully solve the description. Oh, excellent. Watch the space for more news. So we're sticking with the theme of hot planets, KELT-9b, which is uh, the hottest exoplanet known, a, a regular on the show, of course, winning the Exo Cup last year. Um, so we, we've discussed KELT-9b quite a bit, um, and it had iron and titanium oxides discovered in its atmosphere way back in 2018. I say way back, like it was a while ago. It was an exoplanet science, I guess. Um, well, now a, a Swiss-based uh, team of researchers using half North have also discovered um, magnesium, chromium, scandium, and tyrium, which are, I think, the first detections of those uh, those elements in the atmosphere of a planet. So a, a cool discovery. Um, um, given that the, the temperature of the atmosphere might be around 4,000 Celsius, these these elements are likely in the gas phase in a very scorching but probably clear atmosphere. So just a, an incredible planet and uh, still keeps giving some really cool results. So uh, watch the space. Again, there'll be more news from CALT-9b, I'd imagine, before the story is over. Well, um, we're going from hot planets to somewhat smaller ones now. Um, uh, another uh, fan favourite on the show is uh, Proxima Sen b, of course, the, the closest terrestrial habitable zone planet. Uh, however, there was a paper out this month that, that confirmed that this planet is not transiting. Now, thanks to recent observations from, from Spitzer, it wasn't entirely clear as to whether it was transiting or not, but it seems like that's, that's uh, solved now. Um, and this is a bit of a disappointment for those hoping to get some transit spectroscopy. I mean, this is a small planet anyway. Um, but the good news is that the authors do find reduced stellar activity from Proxima b in the near to mid infrared, which makes maybe, uh, you know, this a, a better target for future space-based infrared telescopes like WFIRST or even JWST. So not all bad news. So uh, moving from characterization onto theory, which we don't often discuss, but big big news this month. I, I say big, maybe controversial news this month. Um, if you're following the the kind of mass radius installation narrative that seems to be developing, um, and you, you've noted that there's this uh, bimodal radius distribution with this, um, well, of short period planets anyway, with this with this gap or this valley or the shoreline, whatever you want to call it, somewhere between 1.6 and 2 Earth radii. And now this has been... Uh, explained in the last year or, or 18 months or so by by photo evaporation you know this is a photo evaporation limit driven by insulation from the host star now it seems that there's a, a bit of an alternative theory out this month that suggests that maybe the planet's own accretionary heat and its thermal evolution over time could be driving that atmospheric escape without even needing a star Modeling work by Akash Gupta and Hilke Schlichting suggests that the, the slope function scales with the mass radius ratio of the planet's core. So it's all about the planet's core size. Um, and they suggest that, they, that the observed planet population therefore must have mainly rocky cores with a typical water ice fraction of less than 20%. So it seems like, you know, maybe there's, a, there's two different stories here. And is it core-powered mass loss or photoevaporation that will, that will sculpt these small planets close in atmosphere as well? I guess uh, time and data will tell on that front. Um, and a little bit more uh, debate, I guess, or advancement in the small planet regime as uh, new modeling results from a group at Harvard CFA led by Li Zeng suggest that planets in the two to four uh, Earth uh, radii range, uh, whose compositions are currently not super well constrained, uh, are more likely to be water worlds, um, i.e. dominated by, by water, ice and fluids, as opposed to mini gas dwarfs, uh, which might be enveloped in a, in a hydrogen uh, helium atmosphere. And they, they point to this bimodal distribution, particularly the peak at 2.5 Earth radii, uh, to suggest that maybe that's the 50-50 ice rock ratio limit, um, and that we can then maybe extrapolate that. And mass space is somewhere between 10 and 15. Uh, Earth masses. So we're getting some observables out 
that we could even test with these these theory developments. So kind of cool. Uh, so my next story is uh, actually I'm not sure if it's it's characterization or theory, but this is about Starlink. This is uh, Elon Musk's um, new uh, new Starlink development. Uh, so SpaceX launched the first of sixty um, of this of a possible twelve thousand Starlink communication satellites last week, and seemingly out of nowhere, these new orbiters, which uh, which promise to provide global internet access to remote areas, have have the potential to cause some considerable headaches for astronomers on the ground. So, as I said, this is a story that's that's just developing as we're as we're recording this. Um, so, I've been scouring Twitter, which is obviously the rock face for for these news updates, and I noticed that Jonathan McDowell from the CFA, um, he's quite popu- uh, quite active on Twitter, and uh, he was um, discussing this uh, this topic. And bearing in mind that you know we're still in the early early stages of of trying to figure this out, he provided some early estimates, collaborated from observers that suggest that the satellites will very will form these trains uh, across the night sky that vary in magnitude from about minus two to plus seven. So bearing in mind, if you're not an observational astronomer, Venus is around uh, minus four in magnitude, and uh, the naked eye limit is around about six or seven. So, you know, it's pretty bright. These are going to be, these are going to be noticeably bright. Um, Alex Parker, who you may know on, on Twitter as well, if you're active on there, he's very active. Uh, he's a planetary astronomer at SWIRI. Uh, he modeled the full constellation of, of these 12,000 satellites and noted that 500 would probably be directly illuminated by the sun at midsummer midnight in Seattle, just taking a very, uh, very specific example there. Um, but noting there will be a range in orbital distances and inclination, which means that this is, you know, this is going to change things, definitely. So it remains to seen as to how the final constellation will finally look and what the actual impact will be. But it just seems like this has just come out of nowhere. And I don't know if maybe I just haven't been aware of it. Um, and I think maybe this this illustrates my issues with uh, with with private space industry that there just seems to be this general lack of oversight and, and accountability and uh, you know this isn't even starting to consider the uh, the debris environment and, and and kessler syndrome concerns and the like um so i know hugh has been very active on twitter about this um and he's even done some some back of the envelope stuff so what do you make of all this hugh uh, you know i guess is the is the legal framework kind of outstripping our ability you know we can get to the near earth environment quite easily now but we don't seem to have the legal protections there to to ensure that it's being used responsibly what do you make of this yeah i mean there's kind of two issues on twitter and one is the impact on astronomy and astronomers will have headaches right because of there will be bright smears in or streaks in their data because of satellites crossing the frame and that is obviously going to be a problem if there's because it's not just the twelve thousand from spacex in fact i was looking into it and there's about four other plans to put up more than a thousand satellites in order to, to do something similar in terms of like global internet connection stuff. So it could, in the next 10 years, get pretty serious with 20,000 satellites all glinting in the, in the evening. Um, but I think, that for me, the main problem isn't, isn't the like astrom- astronomical problem. It's, the, um, it's more a kind of social thing and political thing in that, um, okay, it would be bad for astronomers, and maybe that's why I have an innate reaction against it, but it's also going to be changing the night sky way, way more significantly than anything that uh, astronomers and anything that's happened before, right? I mean, we're talking about putting up potentially 500 new stars in the sky every night in summer for northern observers. And so, I mean... I don't think that's a good thing, and I think that there should have been some consultation over that. And if if private companies can start putting 500 new stars in our sky um, without much consultation, then what's stopping them putting 
500 stars in the shape of an advert saying like buy coca-cola there are legal laws that stop them from doing that so that is one thing that they are in the u.s not allowed to do but i agree i agree that the this this a hundred percent needed international oversight which it did not have yes it's an international thing to put these in everybody's night sky not just the united states night sky but remember gps is also a u.s based company they're all over the freaking place uh, there's way more of these. They are brighter. Uh, right now, they're brighter. I don't know how dim they're going to get when they're at their actual orbital distance. But I I think one of my biggest issues with it is the fact that there was no international oversight for something that is internationally applicable. It's not just that it's internationally applicable and that it's going to ruin the night sky for astronomers, which we have to understand we are a huge minority. And as, as Tom said earlier, we're a privilege. We have a privileged position so I think that that's a very dangerous argument to just have as your anchor. I think the argument that I agree with most is that there's no international oversight and that this is a product which is supposed to be for the international community. In fact, the most underserved of the international community. And the fact that they don't get a say in it is something that I think needs to be addressed way more. Yeah, it sets a, it sets a worrying precedent going forward, as, as, as you've both touched on, really. Um, and you know certainly the first thing I thought was one how did I not hear about this earlier and again I don't know if that was just me you know not being up on the news but it seems like uh, the the magnitude of the disruption that it's caused would have would have precipitated a little, little bit more warning I, I don't know maybe that's just me um, and, and the lack of oversight has, has always been one of my concerns with uh, with private aerospace but um, here we go. I guess I guess it remains to be seen. It wasn't entirely clear that all twelve thousand would go up, and um, I see already uh, Elon jumped onto Twitter to to um, become very polyamic in his in its defence. So we'll see how this develops over the next couple of months. Well, that's about it from the uh, from the news decks this month. So tune in uh, next time for more Exoplanet updates. But I'm going to throw it back to the uh, back to the studio. And now it's the time of the show where we adopt a planet into our weird and wacky family of exocast exoplanets. And as always, it is the job of our special guest to adopt a new planet into that family. So, Tom, can you tell us which planet you've adopted and why? I hope I get this right. So I've adopted PDS 70b, which is a planet that's been directly imaged within a planet-forming disk. And... I thought I'd best stick with the disc theme. Also, I don't really have a planet to adopt. It's not like I work on any particularly. <laughs> That's not a problem at all. We always like uh, a new planet in the family. And we actually used PDS-70 in the 2018 Exo Cup. So it's a great one to have. It made it really very far. Was it in the final? Yeah, it made it to the final. It lost out to, um, to Kelt-9b. It had a lot of support from the directly imaged... Uh, family of exoplaneteers that were voting for it could you tell us a little bit about why this is this is an important one yes so i don't know much about the planet itself there's it's estimated to be a few jupiter masses or so and it's interesting because it is observed within a disc <laughs> and there have been other candidate planets observed in discs and what makes them candidates is we see h alpha emission from them which is a signpost that stuff's accreting onto something uh, but we've never actually really directly in, imaged a planet until PDS-70b. So that in itself makes it extremely interesting. It really does. And I think all of our Exo, ExoCast listeners agreed with you in the voting of last year's ExoCup. So I think it is a great one to officially now add to our ExoCast family. 
So thank you for adopting that, Tom, uh, and thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been great. Thank you so much for joining us for another installment of Exocast. I had a lot of fun chatting with uh, Hannah and Hugh and our special guest, as always, and we will return next month for more exciting exoplanetary news and views when I will be joined by a new special guest. Until then, you can check out all our previous shows on our website, exocast.org, and on iTunes and any other good podcast providers, uh, and follow us on Twitter at exo underscore cast, and of course, like us on Facebook. Uh, so until next time, bye-bye. Bye. 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 Exocast. I have exoplanets.